Over the last few weeks on Sunday mornings, we have been steadily making our way through the New Testament book of Acts. And so if you have your Bible with you this morning, would you turn with me please to Acts chapter 17 as we read the first nine verses. And to give you a little context while you're opening your Bible, and you'll find it on page 1722 of the church Bible, page 1722, the Apostle Paul is arriving in the church at Thessalonica, and we're about to see what is an extraordinary event take place. And so we're beginning with Acts 17 at verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and providing that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks, and not a few prominent women. But The Jews were jealous, and so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decree, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. Amen. And we trust that God will bless to us this reading from his holy word. I think most of us would agree that over the last 20 years or so, as a culture, we have been inundated with advice on healthy eating. And we're told to avoid sugar and salt and saturated fat, and we have to be careful in this area of what we eat or that area, and so the advice goes on. And recently someone sent me an email, which I shared with some of you last week, but wanted to share again this morning because it seemed appropriate. And this is what the email said. It said, we have been informed by the media that every slice of bacon we eat takes one minute off of our lives. By this calculation, I should have died in 1789. And I really enjoyed reading that because, of course, the ending was, as with all good humor, unexpected. We know, of course, healthy eating is good for us. We know that physical exercise is essentially uh, healthy. We need to pay attention. And we know, of course, what we eat impacts our lifestyle. And my question this morning is this. If we know what it looks like to be involved in a healthy lifestyle physically, particularly with exercise and what we eat, how do we know if we are healthy spiritually? 
Do we ever ask ourselves those searching, fearless questions that cause us to pause quietly in the Lord's presence and we begin to probe and examine our own soul? Could we say that in the last six to eight months we have grown deeper in our faith? Or have we grown towards apathy? A little indifference sometimes. We've cooled off. Or are we sensing daily His hand of blessing upon us, His presence, His equipping and enabling grace? How do we assess where we are in our relationship with Him? In other words, those essential, fundamental questions of discipleship. Are we growing in our faith? Are we impacting others? Are we helping them grow? Are we meeting and praying together? Are we seeing the Spirit of God impact and transform areas in our own lives and in those we love? Great questions. And this morning, as we come to this passage in Acts, that is in essence what Paul is doing. He arrives in Thessalonica to introduce them to the gospel and then to take them deeper in their faith. Now, notice what happens. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. Now, if you were with us last Sunday, we were in Philippi, which is about a hundred miles to the north. And so Paul has taken several days to make his way down to Thessalonica to do just as the passage says, where there was a Jewish synagogue. And as his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and please notice what happens next. And on three separate days, he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, let me pause there for a moment and focus on exactly what is going on here. Paul was doing in the first century and modeled for us what we do in the 21st century. Each time we gather on a Sunday morning, we gather for worship, which you have often heard us say is the very highlight and the pinnacle of our weekend. And not only do we gather to bring praise to God, to spend time in prayer, but we open up His Word quite intentionally to spend time there because we know from experience and the Scripture teaches that that is where we are fed and nourished and equipped and enabled to live out our faith day by day by day. And that's exactly what Paul is seeking to do here. And Paul, when he arrives in the synagogue in Thessalonica, and they ask him to speak for three successes, successful weekends, excuse me, for three weekends in a row, he teaches them from Scripture. That's the point he's making right there. And what is he trying to do? He is seeking to take his listeners there in Thessalonica beyond casual religious observance to experience and to fully participate in the refreshing 
heart-transforming, soul-captivating experience of engaging with the gospel. That's the point. He's focused on the gospel. He wants them to move beyond religious observance from sacrifice and what to wear and what not to wear and dietary restrictions. He wants to take them away from the outward appearance of religious faith to a living relationship with Christ. And there's a world of a difference. And that's exactly what Paul is doing right here. Moving them from ritual and ceremony and obligation to a relationship. And that's what he's doing. On three successive Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from Scripture, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. Now, let me pause there for a second. Because Paul realizes what subsequent generations of Christians have realized since the first century, and it's this. And if you take nothing else away from this morning, please remember this. The Scriptures were not given to us primarily to inform us. They were given primarily to transform us. That's the point. That's what Paul is teaching. And notice how it ends. Verse 4, some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. And so in the first century, we see exactly what we see in the 21st century as God speaks from his word, engages the heart and mind and soul, draws people into a relationship with himself, and takes them deeper in that relationship. And all of that is going on in these opening verses. Now, let me pause for a second, try and make my second point this morning, which may not be as obvious as the first, and it's this. Now, most New Testament scholars will tell you that the literary style, the vocabulary, theological emphasis contained in the book of Acts is almost identical to that of Luke's gospel. And if you were with us several Sundays ago, we made the point that the writing of the book of Acts and the writing of Luke's gospel are so similar that scholars are convinced it was the same author, Luke, both written on scrolls that were 35 feet in length. Both books are dedicated to the same individual, Theophilus. And what Paul is doing here in Acts 17, he's doing exactly the same as Jesus did on Easter Sunday in Luke 24, the closing chapter of Luke's gospel. And on Easter Sunday afternoon, as two disciples were walking from Jerusalem to the village of Emmaus, and they were walking along, talking about everything that had happened over the last few days, Jesus himself walks alongside them. And the passage tells us this. They were kept from recognizing him. And as the conversation unfolds, we discover back in Luke's gospel that he takes these two disciples into the Scriptures. 
and he explains to them all that the Scriptures had to say about him, his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. And here is Paul doing exactly the same, taking them into the Scriptures. And in fact, what does Paul do? Look at the passage again. He explained, let me from the middle of verse 2, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, and notice exactly what the passage says, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and this Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. What is Paul doing? He's saying this, the Jesus of history is the Christ. He is God's fulfillment of his eternal purposes and plans from the past is now fulfilled in Christ. And he would take them into the Psalms and into Ezekiel and into Isaiah and explain all the Old Testament said. Because remember, what is Paul doing? He's taking them away from mere religious observance, dietary restrictions, sacrificial system of obligation and duty, and he's taking them into a relationship with Christ himself. That's what's going on here. And that, of course, is the very heart of the gospel. And of course, what did the two disciples say in that first Easter Sunday? When they looked back on their experience with Jesus, they looked at one another and said, did not our hearts burn within us when he opened the Scripture to us. And now, here we are in Acts 17, an almost identical parallel passage in terms of the context and the focus. And others responded to the grace and love of God as Paul explained. But let me stop there, because that's not where the passage finishes. In fact, there was some opposition to what Paul was saying, and we see it in verse 5. But the Jews were jealous, and so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. And they rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas. And as you know, they didn't find Paul and Silas, and so they dragged Jason, his family, his friends to, into what is called a civil assembly and charges were brought. And what was the charge? These people who have turned the world upside down have come to us. And what do they do? Well, they make a false accusation. And they say, these Christian people say, Jesus is king, not Caesar. And please understand the significance of that. And the significance is this. Paul and Silas, along with Jason and others, were charged with treason. And if found guilty, they could lose their lives. It was as serious as that. And of course, as we know, there is a misinterpretation here. They are not understanding what is going on. And of course, when they begin to explain, eventually, they let go, they posted bond. And what was the misinterpretation? Remember what we've been saying throughout our study this morning? That what Paul was teaching was this, that real, genuine, authentic faith 
does not make you a social radical. Christians don't call for social transformation of a political system. Our focus is on our relationship with Christ, to have our heart and soul transformed and renewed, for Christ to walk with us each day, take us into that deeper place of a relationship with Him, to be fashioned and refined, to go deeper in our discipleship, to learn to walk with Him and trust Him in every area of our lives, to do what? to submit and surrender every aspect of our life and being to Him. That's what's going on here. It's not about rules and regulations. It's not about dietary restrictions or animal sacrifice. It's about a relationship with Christ. And here is the wonder of it all. And sometimes when I talk to individuals who have no faith, they will say something along the lines of, Richard, I don't want in my life to stop doing this and stop doing that and stop doing the other in order to become a Christian. I don't want to stop doing these things. And I try in some kind of stumbling, usually inarticulate manner to say to them, please understand this that when you submit and surrender your life to Christ, you have new motivations, new desires, fresh insight. You become a new person, and your hopes and dreams and desires and motivation and your very will is changed, and you willingly follow Him. You gladly surrender to Him. You cannot wait for Him to take you to that deeper place. That's the Christian faith. Not something against your will, but you realize the extravagant, overwhelming love that He lavishes on us. And that's what was going on in Thessalonica. That's why it was having an impact in individuals and in a community and across the city. And in fact, if you read the epistle from Paul, known as First Thessalonians, further on in the New Testament, you see that the Thessalonians grew and developed and were nurtured in the faith and had a huge impact on their city. And it's spectacular to see. Now, how do we wrap all of this up this morning as we come to communion? Well, this morning, we have the enormous privilege of gathering around the Lord's table. And this morning, we focus on exactly what Paul was focusing on back in the first century. And you're going to hear in the course of our communion service that our focus needs to be on the suffering, death, and resurrection of Christ. And so on this Communion Sunday, we ask ourselves those fearless, searching, healthy questions. Are we growing in our faith? Is our love for Him increased in the last four to five months? Are we in a better place? Is our intimacy at a new level? For that's what we find in the Scripture. And when we submit and surrender ourselves to Him, that becomes a living reality to us. And we are reminded, of course, this morning that His love was not just simply for the first century. It wasn't simply for those in Thessalonica or in Jerusalem, but it's for all people everywhere, 
from Moscow to the Mississippi, from Greenville to Greenland, Bombay to Beijing, from Indonesia to Indiana. His transforming love is for all people everywhere. And yet, and please forgive me for this because you'll be fed up with me saying it. I've been saying it again and again over the last couple of years regularly on Sunday mornings. That whenever we come to the gospel, sometimes we make two obvious mistakes. And the first mistake is this, that we consistently underestimate the power, significance, and gravitas of our own sin. And our second mistake is this, we consistently underestimate the power, significance, and gravitas of the love and grace of God. It is so much greater than we could ever imagine. So much deeper, so much richer, so much fuller. That is what Paul was proclaiming then. That is what we proclaim today. And that is a healthy experience this morning as we gather around the Lord's table, seek his forgiveness, his renewing presence and once again express to him our thanks and deep gratitude for his love for us. Let us pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you that on this Communion Sunday, you have called us to participate in communion, to be refreshed and renewed by the nurture of this communion service. And so we ask that we would feed spiritually on all that lies before us. Help us to remember your goodness and your love and, your trans and the transformation you bring to us. Father, hear our prayers, for we bring them to you in and through the name of Christ our Lord. Amen.